this time, we'll take a look at the cult classic Sky Captain in the world of tomorrow. And along the way we ask, how does a British pilot end up running an American paramilitary unit? Could Jude Law have made a decent James Bond? And why is it acceptable to punch a woman in this movie? Could we just for once record without all this bickering? This is force-fed sci-fi. Hello everybody and welcome back to the force-fed sci-fi podcast. I am one of your hosts Chris Rupp and I am joined by my friend and co-host Sean Michael Culp, the doctor. Oh you're picking the doctor as your uh, nickname this time huh? Yeah I suppose it's uh, it's suited you know (laughs) in grad school and all that and Whatever, man. They were the pivotal point, I guess, of whatever the plot was. <laughs> yeah, the mysterious uh, Doton, Dr. Totenkopf, the villain of Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, I suppose. Played by the dead Sir Lawrence Olivier. <laughs> the dead, and I guess the unbeknownst to him, because he had no idea, because he was long dead when this film came out. Yeah, he'd been dead for something like 13 years, and I couldn't uh, pinpoint exactly who... The floating head was uh, playing Doctor Totenkopf, and then I saw in the credits like, wait, why, why Lawrence Olivier? That seems like an odd choice. <laughs> it was very odd. It was definitely one of those uh, Uncannon Valley, right, type things. Yeah, it's just one of those things. Like, well, there is an actor alive who I want to play Totenkopf, so we'll just have to see if. The ghost of Lawrence Olivier is available. <laughs> right. Let's just scrounge up a bunch of dialogue to have him in. It's kind of like a, a Rogue One-esque type of thing. But thankfully, it's very short and very brief. And what a, and I do have to say, what a name, Totenkopf. Like, what a name. Whoever wrote that, kudos to them. Yeah, It's incredibly German. Like, you don't mistake, like, oh, because he has a German last name, therefore he's the villain of the movie. <laughs> Right, he's not recycling uh, shows from the 30s and 40s at all. This isn't pre World War II. <laughs> so, for those unfamiliar with the plot of Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, let's provide a brief synopsis of the plot. So, when a scientist disappears, containing information leading to a mysterious villain, journalist Polly Perkins enlists the help of her former lover Joseph Sullivan, known internationally as Sky Captain to look for the scientist and reveal the identity of the infamous Dr. Totenkopf. Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> so it sounds a bit uh, like Raiders of the Lost are kind of uh, plot here. We have a mysterious German who's causing trouble, sending robots all over the world to, to steal things, and we have this you know, care-for-nothing swashbuckling adventurer who gets roped into this adventure to 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 unravel a conspiracy so to speak i guess right i mean i feel like he's almost like batman he's he's supposedly like the batman of this 1930s era like it seems to me like whenever the world is in peril we send the sky captain like type of thing yeah, they make a point, too, to say that all of the world's armies are busy right now, but, like, doing what, though? I mean, what what, what, is, what else is necessitating the attention that they're forced to call on a paramilitary organization that's either operating in 
you know, upstate New York or somewhere across the Canadian border. Like, what, what's going on there? And they seem to only send Sky Captain, like a lone airman. I don't ever think during the film there's other pilots that are ever, you know, sent in the air. It's always just him and I think Dax or whatever, the uh, scientist nerdy guy. They just send Sky Captain up to face down 100 planes. He's just like, I can do this. I got this. <laughs> well, I did like the beginning how they're like, calling Sky Captain calling sky captain they send him and he doesn't really do anything to the robots that are walking around the city like he tries he trips up one and then he finally shoots a bomb but it's not like they there's really much damage that's done he kind of just disables one out of the hundreds that attack new york yeah this is definitely an odd movie with odd characters and odd motivations and it's all the brainchild of the writer and director carrie conran Yes. And like this is this is it. This is his sole major motion picture credit. Yeah. And he's he spent a majority of his life trying to put together this film and to see it come to the big screen. Yeah, this was his dream. <laughs> but despite the fact that this is his only big film and his first big film at the time, he was able to nail down some pretty big stars at the time i mean jude law was in a like a an international movie star at this point he was in a whole bunch of movies in 2004 Mm -hmm. you got gwyneth paltrow to play polly perkins and she had already won an academy award and had been in several fantastic films up to this point and even giovanni ribisi back when he was still relevant at the time yeah yeah i mean it's just he somehow was able to convince all these people, somewhat big names, to give the story clout. Yeah, I don't know how much you remember from the marketing, but I remember every single trailer featured all pretty much all of Angelina Jolie's time in the film. Like They had to <laughs> find a way to get every bit of Angelina Jolie they could into those trailers. Oh, yeah. Well, I actually saw this in theaters. I do remember, I did remember moments, but I mean, that was in 04, so I was like 13 at the time when I saw it, so it was, it was a while, 16 years ago, but I remember, yeah, they really marketed her as the one-eyed sailor pilot, and then Gwyneth Paltrow and uh, Jude Law, and you really didn't know what the heck this film was about, because I didn't really know, I think I fell asleep in the movie, and I remember my dad being very disappointed when we walked out of the movie theater. It was, uh, it was, I just remember the media marketing for this thing was crazy. It was like on Disney and uh, Nickelodeon, every other commercial. Yeah, I remember the marketing was more centered around the big name actors at the time as opposed to trying to sell the story and the spectacle of the film itself. Yeah. Because, I mean, yeah, that that alone is not enough to get butts and seats. I mean, people <laughs> have to give some type of indication as to what they're going to be walking into. <laughs> you want to see a film that looks like it's made in the 40s and 30s, but in modern times? Check it out. It was like, I don't even know what this was. It was kind of like, if you could shoot an entire film on blue screen or green screen, this is what it would be. And like if we just screwed with the lens of the camera and like tinted everything somewhat black and white and fuzzy, congratulations, here you go. I mean, that's what it was. I mean, this was one of the early pioneers of the idea of a digital backlot film where you have your your principal actors and maybe a couple of props, but for the rest of it in 
um, the background and maybe even some things in the foreground is all green screened or blue screen and is just going to get added in later in post-production. Well, it's kind of crazy when watching this film. I'm like, okay, this is a film entirely shot green screen with very little props or sets at all. It made me almost respect, I'm going to make a claim, George Lucas's prequels because a lot of people poo-pooed on the prequels for being way too much CGI, but when you compare the two, somehow Sky Captain used more CGI than George Lucas's prequels, which I didn't think was even possible until I did research on this film, and apparently there's been others that have been shot in totally uh, CG, you know, green screen, nothing else. Yeah, I think but the difference there between the Star Wars prequels and this film is the the Star Wars prequels kind of went away from that sort of grounded realism we saw in the original films where we could clearly see like, okay, this is somebody in like a, a puppet suit or this is an actual working robot. You know, we got the sense there was a sense of realism to Star Wars, whereas opposed to the prequels, like, well, this just looks like a crappy video game. Whereas Sky Captain, we kind of knew going in that there was going to be something different about this film. And I don't think it was fully shown to audiences that we we developed this new technology to make this film. Yeah. It just looks like a weird trailer. There's like, huh, they shot this in such a fantastically whimsical way. <laughs> what is this? Well, did you know? It was the whole film. That was the plot of the film, basically. <laughs> yeah, it was just look at the technology. Look at this technology. Look how great we are. I made this in my bedroom in the 90s. Yeah, but Kerry Conran, like we mentioned earlier, was he's been working on this film, I think, since the, the mid-90s. He created yeah. a short teaser trailer using a Macintosh and this a makeshift uh, green screen. So this has been... This was his brainchild for a long time, and then he was able to rope in producer John Abnett, and then they worked together... For about two years on the script. Yeah. They worked their butts off it because they wanted it to kind of be like an Indiana Jones-esque film. And they developed the technology. And I mean, I do respect, I do have to say, I do respect Conrad for sticking to his guns for nearly a decade and developing this and like how far he took it from 94 to 04. I mean impacting the movie making industry this much is pretty that I mean that is pretty insatiable if you ask me but I don't know with with every film comes problems and just because you impact the industry doesn't mean it's a perfect film no I mean the, the first uh, individual who does something like this is always gonna you know bust himself up coming out of the gate and I mean just reading up on the production cycle and everything leading up to the actual filming of this movie with in regards to Carrie Conran's life and how they storyboarded it and utilized um, like rudimentary animations and animatics to show to the actors mm -hmm. is like, okay, well this is now is like, these are pretty standard things to do yeah. on a CGI heavy type of film. Yeah. He kind of, he broke, he made, he broke new grounds to say. Yeah, definitely broke ground in a lot of ways. And, but he, in some ways, I mean, this kind of almost feels like Kerry Conran is trying to do his best to be like James Cameron, because I also read a lot of things that he would do to 
kind of make sure the film was up to snuff with his vision. <laughs> like, what did he do? Like, he worked like 20 hour days just to complete some of the the visual effect shots because the, the production cycle in the film was very short. I think the film was only shot in like 26 days. Yeah, 26 days. And he would then, as soon as he was done filming, he would go to work on a Macintosh and start working on the CGI effects at, for the day's shots. That's insane. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Because there were like two thousand CG shots or something like that. It was just insane how many. And they had like over a hundred digital effects artists working on this freaking thing. Yeah, the, and the funny thing is, they're all doing these on Macintoshes. <laughs> like as soon as they get the 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 dailies for that day, they just go to work right away on and on filling in all the visual effects shots. It's insane. That is insane. Whoa, when. I, when you have to like they give the look, I guess they ran the, what did they do? They just ran the footage through like a diffusion filter and then tinted it black and white and was blending and balancing things. And then you have to do that and find a way to create these crazy environments, like these robots that I guess back in 04 were pretty like groundbreaking special effects maybe. But I mean, that take, it takes a lot of work to think because like a Toy Story movie takes what, like seven, eight years to make. So I can only imagine how much time they spent working on this. And most of the time, like those like animated, like Disney or Pixar films, a lot of those films production cycles are spent on developing the story and the script and the characters. Because you can just watch a documentary on making Toy Story and you can see all the different permutations of what they wanted to do with that story. And even the writers would have debates on what they wanted the human characters to do, let alone the toys themselves. So, and, and on a film like this, I mean, I'm definitely from this period of time, I've seen better visual effects but again you have to understand that this was one of the first films of its type to utilize the digital backlot and to have literally everything be cgi at one point yes and i do have to say i do give the actors kudos for their acting ability with everything being cgi that had to just be like a pain in the ass to figure out what the heck you're looking at in order to act the scene efficiently so i don't like some scenes where it seems where they're a little confused as to what they're looking at. Or for instance, when they're on the mountain, and they're just wearing basic clothes, but they're apparently on Mount Everest. I gave a little forgiveness because I'm like, all right, it's the first time they did this. So, you know, they're, they're not going to have wind or, you know, the, the breath. Yeah. I just, uh, as an actor, I mean, I, I would find it very hard to act to nothing. I mean, there's literally nothing, nothing around you that you can act to with the exception for the other actors in the scene with you. Absolutely. Like with Gwyneth Paltrow's character, I think Polly was her name, right? And uh, Yeah, Polly Perkins. Polly Perkins, when the city's getting attacked at the beginning by the robots and she has to avoid the stampede, I guess, the robots walking all over her. She did her darndest to look scared. And avoid those CGI robots. I mean, she tried. And so I did give some forgiveness to that. I suppose so. I mean, one of the other things I kind of found a bit hard to, I guess, uh, parse out was, like, was this film set in an alternate history? Or was this meant to be like, hey, this happens in lieu of any sort of, like... Uh, 
like Nazi Germany, you know, uh, pre World War Two craziness going on in the world. I mean, were you able to kind of like figure out when this film was set or what the deal was with the timeline? Uh, no, everything that I saw, he said it was supposed to be, I guess, a culmination of references to the 30s and 40s, that 20 year time period. So it was kind of supposed to be reminiscent of World War II America. But there was nothing, like, they didn't make any references to Nazis. Because I thought that was who Totemkoff was at the end. Like, he was this guy, this Nazi lab tech dude that wanted to take over the world or something. Or he wanted the Aryan blood or whatever. But it ended up just being a crazy mad scientist. And so I couldn't find anything. I think he just made this his love child of his lust for the director Conrad's love of the 30s and 40s soapbox shows and the mysteries and all that. Yeah, there's really, as you were saying, there's no mention of Nazis. There's no sort of any type of military unrest in um, in the Far East. Maybe if the Japanese invaded Manchuria no mention of the Spanish Civil War. I mean, in, in the movie itself even opens with the Hindenburg Three docking at the Empire State Building. So yeah. it kind of makes me speculate that maybe the original Hindenburg disaster didn't happen and yeah. that maybe there was some type of great technological leap following World War One. But again, like the most interesting part or of the film or something that could have been very interesting is just glossed over for the sake of just moving right along with the plot. Yeah. And the plot itself was kind of paper. It wasn't paper thin, but I think it sorely lacked some serious development. It felt that they could have expounded upon more details because there are times where they just like kept boop, moving along when you, when I was watching it, um, just them, in the cave, meeting the guy that knew Totem Cough, like just little instances where they're thrust into different situations and they only experience new people for like a minute. And then, oh, we're on to the next thing. It just kind of, the film didn't breathe that well, I don't think. Yeah, the film was very, it almost unfolded like a video game. Yes. And we talked about this on several other movies on this show, but. You know, Polly is, you know, running around New York trying to avoid the robots. That could have been a video game level. Then she runs into Sky Captain. Then they go to his base and then they have another battle and then they have to go back to his base and then they have to go halfway across the world. So it all just seems like very video game esque, like just different chapters of the movie could easily correspond to a level in a video game. Yeah. And I totally agree with you there. That's what I was thinking about while watching the different scenes, I'm going, oh, okay, so if they made a video game of this, this would be the part where they have another battle. It's it's kind of sad because with the plot, the film is the most relaxed at the beginning with like the mystery with Polly. And those, I think, were the best moments where they're trying to figure out who the heck is taking the scientist, what the scientists are trying to do. And it kind of comes off full stop once they figure out that Totemkoff just wants to start a new race or <laughs> create the best species or whatever. And that kind of, it was a little bit of a letdown when you realize that he's dead. It's just like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's a massive letdown. And then clearly we see that um, Sky Captain slash Joseph Sullivan has some type of weird 
uh, animosity or history towards Totenkopf. But again, that's another thing that's not really no. explored either. I mean, it's implied that Totenkopf was responsible for like a whole bunch of atrocities or war crimes during the First World War, but we don't really kind of that that aspect of Sky Captain is not explored why he hates Totenkopf so much. Yeah, it, it would have just been nice to have maybe Totemkoff alive or something else, or maybe an actor that was actually living portraying him because we could have actually had some interesting dialogue. I think having Totemkoff dead and it being like this Wizard of Oz reveal with, surprise, it's just a machine. It kind of, it was just such a letdown for the ending because it made me wonder why that, uh, what was the point? You know, <laughs> like... Why didn't he shut it down then? If his last notes on the paper was "forgive me," then what? You know, it just was kind of mind bending. Yeah, and then even when we find out that Totenkopf is dead, like like Joseph Sullivan doesn't have any sort of you know funny quip or any sort of anger now that his <laughs> his vengeance and his mission was basically all for naught. And then it's like, well, now I have to try and stop this rocket Noah's Ark kind of deal, and yeah. <laughs> you know. S- save my woman. Well, that's just it. It's just like, up, on to the next thing. Da, 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 da. And it just, I don't know. I think it was just a big miss. It's kind of sad that this is why, that this took, what, a decade plus for this guy to write the script and develop and make the technology and it was his love child. I think maybe this is one of those instances when in college where my professors say when you're writing a paper, go back to it multiple times, but then have other people look at it too. Because if you work on something too long, sometimes you miss details or you just, you're too in love with it. You need to have criticism from the outside. And I think this is just some of those instances where he's like, this is my creation, mine. It's a beautiful masterpiece. It's like, no, dude, get get some help. Get some help. Yeah, it's definitely sort of this, um, like the the entire script is just devoted to the spectacle ra- yeah. rather than the character development, and there's so many things about Sky Captain that are just left unanswered. And this is where the sort of action serial tribute kind of comes into play here, because we don't get any sort of major backstory as to how Sullivan, a British pilot, is able to come over to America and start this international paramilitary group that operates you know, without supervision of any sort of, you know, governing regulatory body. <laughs> Minor details. <laughs> Minor details. And also this group seems to be incredibly well-funded. Like they're able to afford, you know, pretty spiffy planes and they have access to all this technology and cool things that they could do with these planes. And they're able to get all these soldiers in from all over the world and yeah. just operate without Im- without impunity. I think... Because what I was thinking the same thing when I was watching this. And so I thought to myself, I went, okay, then this has to be Area 51 before it was Area 51. This was like the development of Area 51 because there's no way that a government facility could be operated like this without, you know, such a such a imposing threat where everyone knows who Sky Captain is. You know, it just, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, and... Don't get me wrong, I think Jude Law actually does portray a convincing, like, swashbuckling type of hero. I mean, I mean, he even played Errol. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Jude Law is rather convincing as, 
uh, as Sky Captain, I mean, we do. I do believe him when he is this swashbuckling hero, and I see him on screen as this intrepid badass pilot. But at the same time, I feel like his character deserved much more development and a much better arc than yeah. the one we got. I don't even think he had a development. <laughs> what what was his arc? <laughs> no, he had no development. Like his major development was like coming to grip with his feelings for Polly and then punching her in the face in the hopes that she would just stay behind and not worry about all the horrible danger he's about to put himself through. That was so just dumb though. Like they have that one moment where he says, did you cut my line? And that's what this tension between the two characters has built up. This entire freaking film. Did she sabotage his plane? And did he cheat on her? It builds up to them just both lying to each other. And then that's it. And then they, I do love you. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It was very anticlimactic. Well, I mean, and this was also in 2004 when there was a lot of speculation as to who would be the next James Bond. And Jude Law was actually somebody who came up on that short list. And after seeing this film, I think he made a pretty convincing case that he could have been the next James Bond had Daniel Craig not been picked. Okay. That, yeah, I can see that. Why, like now, why they have that. Because he, you know, the mystery elements, the action-y, but suave style, one-liner quip guy. I see it. I see what you mean. But, I do like Daniel Craig, though, so I'm happy we got Daniel Craig. No offense, Jude Law. You know, one of the things I had a hard time trying to figure out while watching this movie is who is it for? Like, who who is meant to be the target audience of this group, of this film? So I think what they were trying to do with this, because I was thinking the same thing. While watching it, I said, all right, is this? are they trying to make sequels? Are they setting up a trilogy? What is the point of this? And I think they were trying to woo family-friendly fun. I think they were aiming for like that nine-year-old to like 15-year-old, 16-year-old style. Because they do have some adult jokes, right? And then with the action-y scenes and everything. But I think it was just PG enough to where... It was just like gruesome enough with like the scary monsters and everything to just family-friendly. Where they didn't... They toted the line very well. Yeah, I, I'll agree with that. It's 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 a it's trying to walk a fine line, you know, because you want to have the fun spectacle of an old school action serial, but at the same time, you want to try and modernize it a bit. And I don't feel like that the filmmakers did a good job of modernizing it to any sort of grand extent. I feel like they just went all in on the action serial tribute and just threw in a few fun jokes here and there. Yeah. No, you're you're right. I while watching it, I said if you want to watch a film in made in 2004 that's supposed to be made in 40s in the 40s, right? But just with our modern technology, this is what you would get. Right, absolutely. And and even just the things that we've talked about in this short time here, it's we kind of see like that this film while the vision was grand and a lot of work and care definitely went into it they were more focused on just making a hyper stylized modern quote unquote action serial without really kind of developing as to what really makes those elements great. And this is where we kind of see, you know, the, the tie-ins to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like this film is trying to do what Raiders of the Lost Ark has already done and done it to greater oh, effect. Without a doubt. <laughs> There's just more, 
it's well it just doesn't make sense like raiders had like the MacGuffin, it had the the whole arc concept the evil mastermind guys that were very prevalent throughout whereas with this it just it seemed like they there was a big rush to the end but the end was such a letdown whereas with raiders at least when they don't when they realize that the arc is something crazy and sciency and weird spiritual at least that's kind of a cool twist on everything whereas with this it just it's just so out of left field it's boring it's really boring i think with a film like this you're definitely asking the audience to have a major suspension of disbelief as to what they're seeing and in hindsight after watching this film i don't think that this is a science fiction film i think this is an alternate history comic book in the same vein of Watchmen without the accompanying source material. And the plot in the film itself unfolded in a way where it could either work as a video game or it could even work as a comic book. And I I think it would have been better if it were a comic book. That way we could see past experiences of Sky Captain leading up to this grand adventure in the world of tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree. It just some things work better as comic books. Like some things just don't translate well over to the big screen, especially for like a two hour runtime. It's just too long, you know? I felt if the film had less action scenes and they cut it down a bit or maybe expounded upon more details with the mystery and had actual live actor playing the villain instead of him being dead, that would have helped the film immensely. But they just focus so much on the style that it ends up taking away from the film, honestly. No, I I agree with that. And especially in regards to the villain, I mean, having, you know, a a dead legendary actor (laughs) portray Totenkopf using archival footage and manipulation is just it almost seems like an insult to Sir Lawrence Olivier to have this be his sort of last film role. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's not fair because you don't know what performance he would have given. So that's why it's kind of, it's, I don't, at times I really don't like when they dig up the dead and give new performances with them just because you never know how they would actually, the choices the real actor would have made. So it's always, it's very uncanny value. I think in this film, it's definitely overdone and it doesn't help the fact that Totenkopf himself isn't even established as the villain until we're almost 40 minutes in. Yeah. And even then, his his motivations are very questionable and his endgame isn't clear. I mean, what was the point of shuffling all those animals into that Noah's Ark type of deal? I mean, and just shooting it off into space. I mean, where are they going to go? <laughs> I mean, last time I checked, there's no air and space for those animals to live. I see. That's that's the question. It doesn't really. Did he find a planet that's habitable? How? There's a lot of unanswered questions, and I don't know if maybe it was because the budget was too big. They ran out of time. I don't. I don't know. It just. That's why it's such a bombastic ending where you're just left in utter disarray because this whole time, even like the female that ends up being a robot, his like quote unquote assistant, she ends up not even mattering. It's just a robot. It just doesn't make sense. There's really no payoff for any of the characters. Even the ending, the the two photos that she's worried about taking Polly the whole time, two photos, two photos, gives up like a bunch of images that she could have used. 
ends up getting a lens cap and then taking a picture of the ground. It's just such a such a dour ending. Like it ends on such a weird, awkward beat. Well, even that too. I mean, you 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 just mentioned like Polly's main crux of her of of her in the third act is trying to get these two amazing pictures with the shots she has left on the camera. And at this point, Frankie Cook, Angelina Jolie's character, is already she's become a non-factor here in the third act. And and by making Polly's only mission to just get these last two pictures, it really kind of diminishes the impact and the contribution of the female characters in this film. Mm-hmm. Well, she doesn't. Yeah, it it's it makes me wonder what was her purpose, you know, because especially when they ruin the two pictures that she's supposed to take. It's just then what what's the point? What, what was her point of this film? Just to admit that she cut Jude Law's line? <laughs> I, it, I didn't understand that. At least Angelina Jolie's yeah, and then, character saved his ass, you know, and like she actually had a purpose. Yeah, and then they had this whole complicated romantic history that really that ruined uh, Sullivan's and Polly's relationship. And then even at the end, when she, her last shot that she has on her camera, she takes it and the cap was still on the lens. It's like, okay, what have we been trying to sympathize with her for then for the last half hour? We've just made her whole plight a joke. And that's it. That's how that film ends is just her staring into the camera, just being like, oh my God, I've wasted my time doing this with him. Exactly. There's no proof of anything. It's just, it's such, and that's how you end the movie, Chris. You end it going, I just wasted my entire time watching this stupid film. I mean, I, and wanted to ask you this as well. I mean, do you does the lack of diversity in the film bother you at all? The lack of diversity. I was actually shocked that there was somewhat of a diversity with the what was that the Tut people or whoever the hell the the people that he saw. That was some diversity, but it was pretty much an all white cast, right? Yeah, with the exception of the two, with um, the group of the, I think it was the Nepalese, Nepalese. Um, the Sherpas or whoever, who were taking them up to the mountain. Yeah, I mean, the cast wasn't big at all. I mean, it just, it made sense. I mean, it was 04, 2004, United States, and I don't know, up to that point, like, most movies were still, like, predominantly white people or like if there was minorities they usually had a minor role you know it's not like today i think the movie nowadays it's it shows like how much we've grown in the industry in the past 16 years so it didn't really bother me per se because the movie was so bad anyways that i just did not care and i'm glad no one else was in it of value yeah i'm i'm i can see your point there I know it's just a, in reading some of the the more contemporary reviews, some people were kind of bothered at the lack of uh, ethnic diversity in the film. It's like okay, like there's there's a lot of factors to understand with what they were going for, but I can definitely see people's point in underscoring that there is hardly any diversity in the film. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's just I don't know. It's some dude's testament. Maybe I don't know. The movies back in the... Because even the movies in the 30s at least had some diversity. But maybe the movies he watched, the director didn't. I don't know. Uh, well, speaking of uh, people and things, did you have a red shirt? Red shirt? Ah, no, I didn't. Or actually, you know what? A red shirt that could be important was the uh, assistant, the 
whatever the doctors, the evil mysterious woman in black that ends up being nothing but a robot and a waste of time. That was my red shirt because they just missed an opportunity for some character development, but it ended up being such a waste. It was like, what's the point? Yeah, I uh, that uh, the mysterious woman was my choice of red shirt as well, and like I questioned the decision to make her a robot as it robs her character of any sort of autonomy she might have had, as well as just making her nothing more than an engineered slave to the now dead Totenkopf. It's like he's dead. Like why is she still you know carrying out her mission? It's just it's stupid, Chris. It's stupid. <laughs> he just doesn't know how to write women characters. A good female character arc. Which is not a surprise knowing Hollywood writers and directors. Yeah, especially uh, <laughs> you know male directors and writers. Oh, absolutely. They have no idea. So I, I was not shocked. Hmm, some man developing a film for 12 years? Love child? Mm, yeah, he has no idea. Speaking of stupid things, did you have a lens flare? Oh my god, the uh, freaking film itself. I mean, it was just the style was fine, you know. The style at the beginning was fine, but then, like, halfway through the film, you just start seeing how bad all the CGI is, how how it just doesn't age well, how fake everything looks. It just get, gets to a point where I'm like, good lord, just give me an actual scene you know, with real props and things. So the CGI in and of itself was really bothersome. I would say my biggest lens flare was when they were driving that stupid ship thing in Totenkopf's palace, where it just looked really bad. I'm like, this is terrible. That was kind of my, oh, Giovanni Ribisi. Kudos to you, man, for trying. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I agree with that. It's just a lot of the graphics look like they were made on first-generation Xbox consoles God. as opposed to the 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 grand Macintoshes they claim they were made <laughs> made on. <laughs> they had one Macintosh. Yeah. But my, my lens flare was actually Gwyneth Paltrow in the film. And really? yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of her as an actress. I think that she gets more credit than she deserves as, as far as her acting abilities go. And her whole performance is just flat and uninspiring and i get it i get that there's nothing to act to on screen but you have jude law who by all accounts is a very pretty man and you mean to tell me that you don't feel like any sort of chemistry like with him or in trying to convey to your audience that you have some type of romantic history with this man like come on you can't just try and act a little bit (laughs) yeah did you did you like the whatever that awkward closeness was in the plane where she got like really close to his face and kept staring at him i'm like what is going on here what is the point of this this is two minutes now i'm uncomfortable what is going on yeah it's like when you have like a little cousin or a a, like a child or something just staring at you uncomfortably until they get their way with you like come on well like stop it and it's like go like it doesn't go eat a popsicle or something leave me alone (laughs) doesn't even pay off though like there is nothing that scene does okay it's supposed to show that she's interested in him again well where's the you know spark there's nothing because he completely ignores her the whole time the whole time when he's mapping out how to meet you know how far the plane's gonna go it's just so stupid there's a lot of dumb scenes and plus you know Gwyneth Paltrow also hawks some pseudoscience stuff and I'm not really cool with that so oh. I have I have many reasons for not liking Gwyneth Paltrow. You mean she made the candle that smells like her lady parts apparently or perfume or something? 
Yeah, I don't know if that was a joke or if she actually did that, but like her whole company goop has just been consistently dragged around for hawking these pseudoscience cures that really are basically no more than snake oil. Yeah, there's Gwyneth Paltrow, man. She's on that essential oil train. No offense to like people that believe in drinking essential oil to cure cancer, but get get a second opinion. Don't don't just base it off of Gwyneth Paltrow. Like I don't mind offending those people because essential oils actually don't cure cancer. <laughs> it's been proven they don't do anything <laughs> other than just make your hands smell weird. God. So, Chris, how did this film do <laughs> in the box office? Oh, well, we didn't even talk about the budget for this film at first, because in spite of this whole digital backlot thing, this film cost $70 million to make, which seems exorbitant. And in spite of that huge budget, Sky Captain only grows just under $58 million. Ooh. Great. <laughs> so the film was not a success. And the budget itself has been disputed by Conran. Um, and I re uh, read an interesting interview where he he said he could have made the movie for under $20 million without having any big names in the cast. So just focusing solely on the spectacle and not the actors in it. So, it, But I think this was just another film that was ahead of its time and people just didn't get it. And in spite of the budgetary losses, this does hold positive r ratings, which I was surprised to see. It's got a 70% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and 64% on Metacritic. And as we always say with the internet reviews, you got to take those with a grain of salt. Oh, yeah. The uh, holy Roger Ebert gave it a four out of four, saying it's heedless energy and joy reminded me of how I felt the first time I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, well, I, I will have to disagree with Roger Ebert at, on that, because this, this feels like a film that was made by like the B-team of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And like I've said a couple other times before, this is trying to do what Raiders of the Lost Ark has already done and just made it worse. Yeah, I definitely agree with USA Today. It's all style over substance. A clever parlor trick, but a dull movie. <laughs> I definitely appreciate that a little bit more. Yeah. But then after Sky Captain comes out, we see a whole, like this brief surge of films that are made utilizing this digital backlot. We we get Sin City the following year, 300 uh came out several years later, Speed Racer, and then probably the most famous example of this digital backlot is Avatar. And we're going to be seeing more sequels for Avatar coming out in a couple of years, so the digital backlot idea is still prevalent in hollywood it's just it, it's it's expensive it's time consuming and you have to have the proper technology in place to make it work yes i mean because i think the most recent one was like sin city a dame to kill for which i think came out like nine years after the original i mean i don't know i i saw that i wasn't really impressed i felt like why <laughs> it's a little late I just think it's yeah. That one was very. That's an underwhelming film, if I'm putting it mildly. <laughs> just, I think yeah, I'll agree with you. It's it's just very time consuming, and I just don't think it's worth it. It really isn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, with all of that in mind, Sean, let's rate this film. Sure. 
as best as we can. <laughs> now, on our unique scale on the podcast of wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, and would host a viewing party, what do you give to 2004's Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow? Uh, Sky Captain can continue living on in the tomorrow because that tomorrow is never going to come for me, Chris. <laughs> that is a would not watch. I am good. I will never watch this film again if I never have to. Uh, the spectacle, why the spectacle is at first cool and the first 20 minutes of the film, you're like, wow, this feels like a cool montage of the films from the 30s and 40s. But the problem with this film is it never leaves that. And because it never leaves that style and you're just stuck, lost in this stylistic film where it's just a rehash of the old, but there's nothing of new. The only tomorrow is the lousy CGI and underwhelming plot. I am good, and I will never watch this again if I don't have to. Good Lord, I am good. How about you, Chris? You know, I don't mind watching homages in a film, but when your entire film is strictly homages and not much else, it's very hard to take it seriously. And I've said it before, this is basically like a sequel. This is like basically Raiders of the Lost Ark 1A. Like if Spielberg didn't make Raiders, I feel like this is the film he would have made. And it's just, it's chock full of everything it wanted, like it aspired to be. Like you have the action serial homages, you have a swashbuckling character, you have a female who is along for the ride with him, along with a mysterious, seemingly all-powerful villain. So you have all the elements of an action serial right up Steven Spielberg's alley, but this is just the film we got. Um, the visual effects themselves have not aged well, but again, it did usher in this very popular and memorable trend in Hollywood, and in a lot of ways, it's still ongoing. Um, but in spite of its place in history, that's not enough to save this film, and I'm going to agree with you. I'm calling this film a would-not-watch. Spare yourself the time. Go watch Raiders of the Lost Ark or even Avatar if you want to see a better example of this digital backlot type of filmmaking. Very nice. Uh, so, Sky Captain, folks. So, Chris, are you ready to pick the next movie on our list? Oh, hell yes, I am. I am ready to wash the taste of this film out of my mouth. And to do that, we're going to enlist the help of our friendly random number generator AI, Major Samantha, to help us select from our list of 118 movies as to what we're going to watch next. So, let's go ahead and hit that number roll. And here it is. It is number 44. It is a film from 1997 directed by Paul Verhoeven. It is Starship Troopers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm stoked. Uh, sweet. And it's on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can watch it for free. <laughs> yeah, we're going to dive back into the world of Paul Verhoeven's satire war films and watch Starship Troopers. I'm I'm pumped to watch this movie. I haven't watched it in a long time. I've never seen it, so I'm I'm stoked, man. All right, awesome. Well, that'll be our film for next time. Please watch and enjoy with us. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at ForceFed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts. And go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, 
you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for all of us at the Forcefed Sci-Fi team, we'll see you next time. Forcefed Sci-Fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design associate producer and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.